for the reading of God's word. This is not the word of man, this is the word of the living God who dwells on high. And yes, we've been reminded he stoops to dwell with us as well. Let us hear the word of God. Just considering one verse this morning, verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we pray that you would magnify yourself in our midst. Father, as we consider the desire that Christ expresses to you in prayer some 2,000 years ago, and yet a desire that has in no way diminished And we have seen the results of his work on the cross that we've just heard of from Isaiah 53 has borne fruit. Uh, Even in the cross you have shown forth your glory, accomplishing what no one could have conceived of, overthrowing the powers of darkness and canceling the power of sin. Lord, we marvel that in these things in the cross that Christ, though humiliated, is ultimately exalted. Lord, as he prays, Concerning his glory, Lord, open our eyes that we would see him arrayed in glory afresh and anew, and in anticipation for that day when we shall see him with undimmed eye. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine some of you adults are aware about you children, but this last week, particularly on Monday, events took place that will not take place again in our lifetimes perhaps never again in a lifetime. It was an event that has never taken place. I'm speaking, of course, of the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, the longest reigning monarch in British history, perhaps in any history. Um, I'm no historian. Um, I have studied history, but I can't think of any reign so remarkably long as this woman. My wife and I watched the coverage of that event on Monday, and I had many emotions. I was impressed by the precision with which every detail was executed. I've heard in news reports that they've been rehearsing for it for over a decade, approaching two decades. I was amazed by the grandeur that was displayed, so fitting of a person of such stature. And I was all, once again, at Westminster Abbey, someplace I've been on more than one occasion. But more importantly, and above all, I was warmed in my soul to hear the proclamation of the gospel as the scriptures were read and other parts of the service took place. And indeed, by all reliable accounts, Queen Elizabeth II believed the gospel that was proclaimed. Her life was a witness that God had done much in her, that she had a a saving and abiding faith, those who knew her, that this would say that this was more important to her than being the queen of a people. What I saw, along with hundreds of millions of others around the world, was the greatest display of human glory in my lifetime. But that glory, in comparison to the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, is as a lit match compared to the light of the sun. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. 
There is an incomparable glory in Christ. In our text this morning, we will hear how our blessed Redeemer declares his desire to God his Father that we, his redeemed people, be with him in heaven to behold his glory. Last week we heard Jesus pray that we, his redeemed people, would be one in unity, that we would be united by the working of the gospel and the Holy Spirit in us, that we become one even as the Father and the Son are one, and thus display God's glory in salvation on the earth, for God alone can take such a disparate people and bring them together in unity and harmony. Next week we will hear Jesus pray that we, his redeemed people, would have the love of God in us. This morning we're just going to use two points. I know that's kind of remarkable because I've kind of been on four points for a while, but this morning only two points. They're longer titles, but they're hopefully memorable. Jesus desires that his people be with him, and Jesus desires that his people gaze upon his glory. Now, while the two main points clearly say what this text is about, let me summarize it in one phrase. Jesus loves his people so much that he will show us his glory for all eternity. He desires that. It's such a glory as we cannot comprehend while yet earthbound and dwelling in these shells of clay, still affected so much by sin. But that will change. We shall behold our King in glory. So let us begin with number one. Jesus desires that his people be with him. So far, Jesus has prayed for his disciples that our Father would preserve them, he would sanctify them, and that he would unite them in a perfect unity. In this 24th verse, Jesus names the fourth and the last thing that he desires for his disciples, that they would see him in the fullness of his glory. Let's unpack what Jesus prays here. He says, Father, I desire... Now, we know that Jesus, the Son of God, only desires what his Father desires. That has been one of the great um, refrains, like a chorus in a hymn that you keep coming back to one thing. That's been one of the, the chief things that has come through in John's record of Jesus' prayer. I mean, his, his gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus only does what he sees his Father doing. He only said what he heard his Father saying. And so with this statement, Father, I desire, we know that it is the Father's desire as well that we see Jesus in his glory. For it is the Father who so loved the world that he sent his Son into the world so that those who could never behold God's glory because we are uh, sinners and corrupt by sin could be washed and redeemed and brought into the presence of God to behold him in his glory. Now, as we hear Jesus say, Father, I desire, Jesus is not then coming to persuade the Father. And when we pray, we come with petitions. We come as lessers to a greater, and we make our requests known unto God. We've, we've learned that when we make those requests known in Jesus' name, that we'll be granted what the Father wills, that he hears and answers us. But here we see Jesus declaring what the Father's will is even as it is his own, because they're one. Some translations render this as, I will. The verb, just in just a straight uh, translation, can be that. But as William Hendrickson comments, I desire perfectly states the meaning, for it combines the delight, the deliberation, and the determination element of the verb, I will. You get that? It's not just 
that I will. I, I want this to be done. It's his desire, and it grows out of Jesus' delight in his people, his deliberation in what he's done, and his determination to carry it through. And that's very significant when you consider he's on the very threshold of going to the cross. And indeed, the only way that he could secure us access to the Father is that he laid down his life for his own. Even as we've heard from Isaiah 53, it was our transgressions, our iniquities. He was smitten and afflicted for us. This morning, as we've had Isaiah 53, and we will soon, um, in two weeks, uh, be going into the arrest and the trial, you see the, the beauty of bringing Isaiah and John's gospel together. We will see so many things. We've seen it all along, but we've seen so many parallels and fulfillments from Isaiah as they're recorded in John. So what does Jesus desire and delight? What is it that he desires to see accomplished? It is to constantly be in the presence of those whom the Father gave him. Just think about that. He returns to the Father. He'll be in the presence of the Father in his humanity. He will ascend on high. He has ascended on high. He will come from there, and then he will gather us, that we, those whom the Father gave to him, will also be with him. William Hendrickson, um, often, well, not often, but regular on a frequency, I uh, take uh, Hendrickson's very literal translation of the Greek that is used here. And uh, the New American Standard often founds, follows it very literal, and it reads a little clunky to us with our English-speaking ears. That doesn't make sense, English-speaking ears. Our, our ears that are accustomed to hearing English, there's, there's a certain word pattern. But sometimes the... The very literal translation communicates something. So listen to how this text would be. It's, there's, there's a, what I want you to hear is there's a very insistence in the declaration. Jesus says that that which you have given me, I desire that where I am also, they be constantly with me. There's an insistence. There's an intensity in what he says. What is he saying? Our good shepherds deep and abiding and everlasting love for his sheep comes through. So great is his love that he was he's going to go and lay down his life so that we, his sheep, can be with him in heaven, that we can behold him arrayed in his glory. He has a glory as a son of God that's been veiled during the incarnation by his humanity, but then not only will we see him in his deity exalted, magnified, but in his humanity, his glorified humanity, the God-man, God and man in one, the fullness of the revelation of God unto men. We shall behold it. Jesus loves us so much that he was going to the cross so that that could take place. So when he says, I desire, that's what's on the line. That's what's required for that to be fulfilled. This is the origin. Uh, the origin of this plan of salvation is stated that he says that they also whom you gave me, those whom you gave me, or we could say the given ones, because those that he has are the ones the Father has given him, given ones. Jesus has spoken of this already back in chapter 6, verse 39. Listen, this is the will of my Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Earlier in this prayer, look back at chapter, or, yeah, chapter 17, verse 2. As you have given him authority, he's talking about Christ. He's praying in the third person as he opens. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given 
him. Here's the given ones again. Look on down at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then a little later in verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. This repetition. But here's the focus. There's a particular people that the Father has given out of all the sons of Adam, none worthy of redemption, all condemned and guilty because of Adam's sin. That thus we all have a sin nature and we are condemned before the Almighty God, as John 3:18 says. We stand condemned already. But the Father has taken from those who are under the curse for sin, and He has given a people to His Son. In the covenant that was between the Father and the Son. In eternity past, there were those appointed for eternal life. We've been entrusted by God to his son. And this is what's remarkable. What are we? Filthy, undeserving, unrighteous, ungodly, unholy sinners. And God gave us to his son that his glory would be displayed, that as he, the righteous one, would secure our salvation through his righteous, spotless life and his sacrificial, atoning death, that we would be washed, cleansed, and secured unto God in holiness and righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the will of the Father, that we then, the given ones, would dwell with him forever in his presence. It's for this purpose that Jesus delights in the work that the Father's given to him. Because then we shall see him as he is. Then we shall be free from sin. Then we shall see him in exalted state, even though now we see him as through a glass darkly. It is true, we already see Christ, is it not? We see him with the eye of faith. We hear him from the scriptures. We hear him preached and proclaimed. And there is a picture of this exalted Christ that we see in our mind's eye. By faith we behold Christ in his majesty. But Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all with unveiled face beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. God is doing that. He's transforming in us. When we look at one another, we see the Lord. We are united to Christ already by faith. And we behold one another. We, we are seeing the body of Christ on the earth. We are one body. Not just this group of believers, but indeed all those who call upon the name of the Lord around the earth. We see Christ in the church. But then we shall see him as he is. Our head exalted on high, high above all the earth. This brings us to our second point. Jesus desires that his people gaze upon him in his glory. There is this glory that Jesus has that through his sacrificial atonement on the cross opens the way that we can be brought into his very presence. You remember when Moses asked to see God, God said, Moses, that's not possible. Moses, though say by faith, though clothed in the righteousness of Christ, yet his flesh was still that of sin. And God said, it's not possible. And so God told him, uh, took him, placed him in, in a cleft, a, a cut out in the rock, as it were, children, like a, a shallow cave, placed him there. And God placed his hand, as it were, 
not literally, but in some sense shielded Moses to protect him. For there's no way that Moses could have beheld the glory of God in that state. He would have perished, but God shielded him. Then as he passed by, Moses was permitted to see the backside of the glory of God. And what was the effect it had on him? He came down from the mount, and he came before the people, and they said, Moses, you must veil your face. We cannot look upon you because the glory of God radiated forth from him. My brothers and sisters, oh, that we would have that more in our lives by our holy and righteous living. We've heard about that the Lord desires for us to be sanctified, holy. And as we live holy lives, it's not to our glory. It's not to our credit. That's the glory of God revealed upon us and in us. That's what Paul's writing in these words. We are being transformed into the same image from glory unto glory, just as by the Spirit of the living God, so that we grow in sanctification and holiness. Prior to this, Jesus' glory has been seen. Prior to this culmination, what Jesus has in view here, when, he, when he's exalted on high, when he has gathered us into his presence, when we are free from uh, sinful bodies, when we are fully glorified and in his presence forevermore, Jesus would have us to see him in his glory. But before that, Christ's glory is in the scriptures. You read the scriptures. When you, when you hear the prophets, we see the glory of God. Even from the opening pages of scripture, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. I'm sorry, that's John 1.1. In the beginning, uh, no, for God, now I can't even think of Genesis 1.1. It's out of my mind. But uh, in the beginning, God. Right, The glory of God in the beginning of God. And you see the word of God go forth from the mouth of God. And you see the spirit hovering over the face of the deep as God is making himself known through Moses to describe what happened in the beginning of time. And then down through the ages, we've had it proclaimed from God's pronouncement in the garden to Adam and Eve that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The glory of Christ is set forth. And it is through uh, the, the prophet Isaiah earlier in chapter 7 that there would be a virgin who would be with child, a, a further explaining of this seed of the woman. And you have all through the prophetic utterances uh, the beauty of the, the psalmist, the singer of Israel, describing Christ and, and many times uh, being but a shadow of Christ as David particularly lived out his life. The glory of Christ has been on display since the beginning of time. We can see him. He makes himself known through the scriptures and through the prophets. But then we see his glory in the incarnation. In the fullness of time, at the right time, God set forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law, God in human flesh, God incarnate. Looks like any other little child, but he was more than that. He was the God-man the beauty and the glory of Christ undisplayed, that he who is the exalted one of heaven humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, came not to be served, but came to serve others. You see the glory of God. And Jesus even tells us, the way up is down. If you would be great, be the servant of all. We see the glory of Christ on display there. We've seen, particularly in John's gospel, though there's just a, a few samplings of the miracles that he's done, you see the glory of God in Christ Jesus on display. Lepers, that dreaded disease that, that permeated the whole of the being, destroyed and decayed the flesh until a person would die. Jesus touched the unclean, and he who was clean cleansed them and healed them. And they went away, we're told, with, with the flesh like a baby. The glory of 
God in Christ Jesus on display. Or when he encounters the the lame and he raises them up. The blind, even one who was blind from birth. Remember that in John's Gospel, the account even of the young man. Has anything ever been heard like this since the beginning of time? That a man born blind sees. And the people glorified God. Why not? It was most remarkable. But then what about that pinnacle of the mighty works of Christ, he'd healed the widow, I mean, raised the widow of Nain's son, hours dead, being carried out to bury. But Lazarus, surely you know what I'm going to say next, the four-day dead man, right? It's four days dead. And he said, open the tomb. He wanted everybody to know he was four days dead. This was no fainting spell. He was not in a coma. He was dying and he was, de- he was dead and decaying. That God in Christ be glorified. And Jesus even prays, not that he needed that to, to do what he was going to do, but he wanted the people to know that what he was about to do to call this man out of the grave was to display the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ has been on display, but even as we come to the close of chapter 17, the glory of God in Christ Jesus is going to be on display in a way that it's hard to imagine. It's, it's one of the paradoxes of the gospel that Christ would go to a cross, that Christ would be crucified, that Christ would be smitten and afflicted of God, that he would bear our stripes, that we'd be pierced for our iniquities. In all this, we see Christ glorified. Is he not glorious to the sinner's eye who has repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Foolishness to men. Men mock these things, but when you understand them, when the Spirit has opened your eyes to see the, the magnitude of what God has accomplished, you see the glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Jesus is praying back, he's talking about something greater. Oh, Peter, James, and John, they had a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Don't misunderstand. What they saw was not the fullness because they're still in their sinful flesh. They could not have stayed in the presence of Christ as the fullness of the deity of God in the Son was on display. They would have perished. But they saw something of the magnitude as Matthew and Mark, they described that his clothes became brilliant, dazzling as though electrified or as uh, like lightning was upon him, a, a glorious display in, in a limited form there on the mount of his glory. But all of these pale compared to the glory in Christ Jesus going to the cross. That he would lay down his life But then all of these pale in comparison to the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, his human human, uh, body fully glorified, uh, fully on display, the glory of God in the person, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' Father, I desire that those that you gave me, the given ones, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory that they may see me in the glory that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've seen something of it, these men particularly. We see something of it with, by faith as we hear these things recounted by these men, moved along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the Word of God. But we shall see it. I was thinking about this because in uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral service, they read from 1 Corinthians 15, how appropriate 
that hope that she had in the resurrection, the hope that we share in common in that moment. What will happen when Christ shall come with his shout and, and the, the sound of the trumpet of the archangel of God that those who are dead in Christ will come up out of the graves ahead of us that are living and then we who are alive on the earth will be changed in, in the twinkling of eye, that little millisecond of a moment, and that we all shall be caught up to meet him in the air. We shall behold him coming arrayed in his splendor and his majesty. You read the book of Revelation and you have something of a sense what that will be like, but let us be honest. Human language, any human language, has no words to describe that scene. We shall see our beloved in his glory. That's Jesus' desire. But not just that we would see it in that one moment, but that we would be gathered with him into the new heavens and the new earth, that where he is, there we may be with him also. That's what Jesus says. That they may, those who have given me may be with me where I am. Flip back to chapter 14. Jesus having washed his disciples' feet humbled himself, taking the lowest servant's position to wash their filthy feet. Then he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And then here it is. Here's this foreshadowing of what we're hearing in his prayer. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. My friends, heaven is not streets of gold. It's not streams of living water with trees planted bearing fruit in their seasons. It's, it's not the angelic host, myriads upon myriads of them, as, as glorious and as splendorous as those are. Heaven is Christ. Heaven is to behold Christ, to be with Christ. That is what heaven is, to be with our beloved. That's Jesus' desire, that we would be with him that we would be this one who gave himself for us. He gave himself in the most inhumane death imaginable. But it wasn't that cross death. It was that as he hung there, the wrath of God was satisfied for our sins. Oh, how glorious does Christ appear. Without him, we would perish. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, because he's done this, humbled himself so severely, therefore God has highly exalted him. That's what Jesus is anticipating. He wants the given ones, all the hosts, not just the 11 that are with them, but indeed those who would believe through their testimony, indeed those in eternity past who would believe the testimony of the prophets. He wants all of them to be with him, body and soul soul and body reunited, that with human eyes undimmed by sin, we will behold him in his majesty. What a thought. Beyond our understanding, that's Jesus' desire, that we will behold him and gaze upon him to, and go into the rapture of the soul to see the glory of Christ. As the scripture declares, eye has not seen nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what that sight is like. And then we shall behold him in his glory. He says that they may behold my glory. The radiance of his divine attributes. I won't go off like a Puritan and tell you we're going to preach a sermon on each of these divine attributes, though that is so appropriate to consider who he is. His holiness. 
many of us were introduced to the Reformed faith by R.C. Sproul. I can remember the first time I saw him in person. He was talking about the attributes of God, and he, he came to the matter of holiness. And he said, if there's one attribute that's greater than the others, and there isn't, it would be holiness, but it's not. But the importance of that, the holiness of God. You know, when it's mentioned in the scripture, it's thrice holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. We shall see what the holiness of our God looks like. And the purity, the purity of our God, it is said to be like unapproachable light. So brilliant is his purity that in our mere humanity we would be consumed. We shall behold his wisdom. It's the wisdom of God that is on display in the gospel. What men deem foolish. God's wisdom is on display in the preaching of the word. I'm but a man with infirmities, afflictions, a sinner as well, and yet God has appointed sinful men, given gifts by the Holy Spirit, equipped by God, sent forth to preach the word of God. The wisdom of God would be on display. And the wisdom of God far exceeds man's. And scriptures even talks about that the foolishness of God is high above the wisdom of man. Not that God has foolishness, but just to teach us how great is the wisdom of our God and his power. From the time, moment that time began, in the beginning, God, God spoke in all things in the vastness of the universe. And we'd have a better understanding of how vast that is today. And when we meditate upon it, when you consider it, when you think about it, it's mind-blowing. It's hard to conceive of the expanse that the universe is. We really can't comprehend it. And then God spoke. Boom. It was there. The power of God. And he sustains it. He governs it. He directs it. All his creatures, all their actions, all the mighty kings and men down through the ages were just like a a little worm in the hand of God to, to direct according to his perfect counsel. The power of God. And then there's the goodness of God. We see the power and the goodness of God on display in the cross. The goodness of God to save sinners and the power of God and then the wisdom of God to bring about so great a salvation that our foe, God's great enemy, Satan, who is seeking to undermine and overthrow, undo and destroy all that God had done that was good, thinking that when he had seized Christ through uh, the Roman soldiers and the, the malice of the religious leaders thinking through these men he had succeeded like in the parable when the vineyard owner sends his son to collect the rent from men who have been unworthy tenants. They think we'd destroy him and then it'll all be ours. That's what Satan thought. But he was crushed. He was destroyed. He's like a lion on a leash. He's like a junkyard dog with a fence around him. He can only go where God allows him to go. As the opening of the book of Job so beautifully declares it. The power, the goodness, and the wisdom of God, and the truth of God will be on display. For then we shall see all that has been foretold come to pass. And a reality, and a fulfillment of it. All the manifestation of God's holy character. All of heaven, the very throne of God, will cry out glory. Myriads upon myriads of holy angels continuously crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus wants us to see that. That's his desire. God's mercy and grace will be on display in us. 
a sinful people redeemed by grace in the presence of the holy God. God's redeeming grace will be fully displayed as we stand round the throne and ever sing his praises, singing the new song of Jerusalem. We will see Jesus. We will see Jesus. We will see him with undimmed eye. We shall see Jesus and forever be with the Lord. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. That would be true of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But God the Son has taken on human flesh. That's the incarnation. And thus it is that Paul writes that in him, that is in Christ, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It is in Christ that we see our God. And in some way, beyond my understanding, God will communicate to us his triunity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it is done through the Son. Even as he walked upon the earth, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. A mystery, to be sure, but a reality that we will behold in that moment we are, when we are in glory. We will gaze upon Christ in his glory and behold our God. Marvelous, marvelous thought. Seeing God in Christ, then, is the bliss of all God's people, the redeemed of the Lord. This is why the, what the psalmist anticipated. I've just picked two psalms, two verses from two psalms. Psalm 17, 15. But as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. The power of transformation of Christ. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, and to inquire in his temple. My friends, Sisters and brothers, is this your great longing? Is this the longing of your soul? I imagine your soul is like mine. This, this longing, it waxes and it wanes. It's inconsistent. We, we vacillate, and yet there's something of the Spirit of God at work with us that keeps that desire ever before us to see the Lord. I think it's something of the shame that we feel when, when, we, when we played in sin and, and we come before the Lord God. We're ashamed and we're guilty. But come we must and confess our sins. We long to see his glory. Because when we do, we shall be like him. And what does the scripture mean there? We shall be like him because we will be free from sin forevermore. Oh, the thought to be ever free from sin Son and daughter of God, do you wrestle with sin? Are you plagued by sin? Do you frequently find yourself distraught that you've sinned yet again? Do you long to be free from sin? Indeed, the idea of dying and going to be with Christ is a glorious thought when we consider in that we will be free from sin forevermore. But until Christ calls us, we wrestle and we wage war and we battle on against our own flesh in the strength of Christ to the glory of God, and even in that obedient living here below, we're displaying the glory of God, and there's the anticipation of seeing him in his glory. We mentioned earlier how God has already displayed the glory of Christ to those of us who believe. In Psalm 90, 16, the psalmist, this is the psalm of Moses, is let your work appear in your servants and your glory to their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Us. So there it is. 
beauty of God formed and fashioned in us as we become more conformed to the image of Christ. The Apostle John, the same one who wrote this gospel down in his first letter, John, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when we, he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Jesus will ultimately glorify all his people. The given ones will be glorified. The final and fullness of the work of Christ will be the ultimate and complete transformation of sinners saved and glorified. Glorified, brothers and sisters, free from sin forevermore. As image bearers, the image of God will be fully restored in us. That which sin has disfigured and defiled, the, the noetic effects of the fall that has permeated all our being, will be done away with. We as image bearers will fully reflect the glory of God in our being as Christ has glorified us. We will be the reflection of the perfection of our Creator. Oh, glorious thought. William Hendrickson puts it this way. As we gaze upon him, we like perfect prisms. Some of you younger children, you may not know, a prism is like a triangular piece of glass that when the light hits it on the one side, it sends out a rainbow of colors on the other side. That's the language he uses here. He says, as we gaze upon him, we'll be like perfect prisms reflecting the light which beams from the glorious countenance and shows its exquisite beauty of color in lives holy dedicated to him, sinless and never to sin again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Who can do this but God alone? Jesus is the light of heaven, that light of his glory that will reflect in his people. That's what will be shining forth through us, like the light of the sun reflecting off the moon, although never waxing, never waning. Think about this. Think about how encouraging it must have been for those 11 that yet remain with Jesus. There's Peter. He's been silent since Jesus told him, this very night you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. He's told him at the end of chapter 16 that they're all going to forsake him. They're going to vanish away. But he said, I will not be alone. Though I'll be alone from you, I will not be alone. My Father is with me. They've heard these words. They've heard so much of the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. They, they begin the evening baffled that their, that their master would wash their feet. And just one thing after another, they, they're bewildered and confused. They're things that they do not fully understand. Though after the resurrection or the coming of the Holy Spirit, they will. But here they are in all their weakness. And Jesus prays these prayers. He's praying for them. Jesus knew they were weak. For he knows all our weakness. He knows all our sins. Sister, brother, he carried it to the cross for you. And he has handled it. He's dealt with it perfectly. Oh, what glory at the cross because of he who hung on the cross in obedience. And he rendered up himself to the glory of God our Father. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves you, sister and brother, and he wants you to be with him forevermore. That's his prayer. That's his desire. And as we said from the outset, that's the desire of the Father. That's why it's the desire of the Son. Can we fully grasp this? No. Not now. Not yet. But when we have, when we enter in eternity, we will. And we will have all of eternity to praise 
his name, he who is worthy. How does this prayer come to rest? It is here in this uncomfortable climax, I'm sorry, this unforgettable climax, not uncomfortable, this unforgettable climax, that the beauty, the tenderness, and the intimacy between the Father and the Son are seen. What does Jesus say? For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus did not begin to be in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was then that the God, the God, the Son, God, the Son, eternal with the Father, equal in power and glory, took on human form. But the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. This statement, for you love me before the foundation of the world, modifies and clarifies all that has come before in this prayer. It's because the Father has always loved the Son that he gave him the glory of Redeemer, Jesus, the Redeemer of sinners. Let me conclude. The majesty and glory of the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II will fade from my mind as well as the minds of all those who looked on. But what will not fade is the glory and majesty of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even now. I really enjoyed meditating upon this. And even now, Elizabeth, our sister, beholds the unfading glory of God. She's forgotten all the splendor of her worldly wealth and position. And it was great. And they were talking about how much immediately passed to her son as king. Inconceivable sums. But she's forgotten all those things. She did not hold on to them. What does it profit a man to gain all the wealth of the world and to lose his soul? Queen Elizabeth lost her soul to Christ years ago based on all credible testimonies. And even now, she takes no delight in worldly pleasures. She beholds Christ in his majesty. She has found that pearl of great price. She has found the treasure hidden in the field. She beholds the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, as the newscasters continue to talk about the massive wealth that was once Queen Elizabeth, let us rejoice in the tender mercies of our God who stooped to save this woman and you and me and countless hundreds of millions others besides, all to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will be revealed in glory when he comes again. Who is like unto the Lord our God? Indeed, who is like unto the Lord our God? No one. There is none like Jesus. He is the fairest of 10,000. It says, John the Apostle writes in his Revelation 19, chapter 19, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his hand are many crowns. And he had a name, that, name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. All in the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And this same one says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And again he says, Surely 
I am coming quickly. Like a thief in the night, it has been revealed. I'll be ready to meet and greet him. If so, let our reply be, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus and show us your glory. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. O Lord our God, these are marvelous things. Truly beyond our understanding, O God, we stretch with our capacities to try to grasp the beauty of Christ arrayed in glory. Lord, we we grasp to to try to think beyond earthly glory, what men deem glorious, to to consider what it is, the, the glory of God, and particularly the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we see faintly by faith this glorious one. And Lord, we rejoice because it is you who has worked in us that we should believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And Father, we find great comfort in knowing that Jesus desires that we be with him because he loves us. And Lord, we love him. Lord, stir up our love that would ever be growing. In Jesus' name, amen.